Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. There was some exciting news this past week from Cape Hatteras National Seashore in North Carolina. That's where researchers have found a patch to the seashore where they say the world's largest gathering of piping plovers fuels up before continuing on their long migration to their wintering grounds. We also learned of a bald eagle at Glacier National Park that died from lead poisoning. And Erica Zambello offered her thoughts on the 10-year anniversary of Ken Burns' remarkable documentary on the national parks. You can find these and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, Erica visits with Sonia Sachs, a young woman who turned her passion for parks and photography into a great avocation with a strong social media following. Erica and her husband also visit Gulf Islands National Seashore for some fishing, and we wrap up the show with the question of whether Dinosaur National Monument should be renamed as Dinosaur National Park. And I'm speaking today with Sonia Sachs, the force behind the National Parks Girl website and popular social media account. Sonia not only takes stunning photos of some of the country's most beautiful outdoor spaces, she also writes about her adventures on her blog, as well as in a series of online backpacking guides. Sonia, welcome to the National Parks Traveler podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So my parents cemented my love of the outdoors when they took me up mountains in those little child carrier backpacks. So I was always hiking really even before I could walk. And so I was curious, were outdoor adventures a part of your family life growing up or is that something you came to in adulthood? My parents were definitely outdoors oriented and they took us on plenty of camping trips when I was growing up. I think I was also in one of those little backpack carriers But during my uh, teen years, I was definitely one of those kids that preferred to stay in the car and was wondering when I'd get to go home. Uh, But then a couple years ago, I kind of stumbled upon the national parks and hiking and backpacking and just immediately fell in love with it. And I like to say that my parents planted the seed uh, when I was growing up, but it just, it took a little while to bloom. Well, you're definitely not alone there. I also went through that teenage period when I didn't want to do anything that was not an organized sport or from the comfort of my own hometown. So you're definitely not alone there. And so I want to delve into that a little bit. You identify, you know, as the National Parks girl. So you said you stumbled on the National Parks. Where did your focus on this system as a whole originate? One of my husband's and My first trips that we ever went on together was to Utah, and it was one of his favorite places, and he had wanted to visit it. So we decided to go kind of on a whim over a long weekend to Arches and Canyonlands, and this was my first time ever visiting a national park, and I really had no idea what to expect. I'd heard of them before, of course, but I'd never spent much time in them. And so on this very first trip, I was just completely blown away by the amount of open space and the amount of land and just the natural wonders. And then I found out that there was at the time 59 national parks and I couldn't start visiting them fast enough. I just fell in love so fast with them. 
And are you from the West originally, or is that something, I mean, was that part of your experience as a child, or are you a transplant? I'm a transplant, so I'm originally from Wisconsin, so we don't have many mountains there, and I think that was another thing. I hadn't really experienced mountains growing up. I experienced plenty of woods and lakes, but being able to visit the West and seeing the mountainous landscapes just was something that I had never experienced before, and I was really blown away. So given that, this is probably the hardest question that I'm going to ask the whole interview, but in all of your travels, do you have a favorite park memory so far? And if you do, where and when was it? My absolute favorite national park is Glacier Bay National Park in Alaska. And last summer, my husband and I went on a six-day kayaking trip there. And on the last night, uh, we were camped on a beach next to a bay and about halfway through the night, my husband, Alex, he, he nudges me and he goes, Sonia, there's a whale outside of our tent. And sure enough, you could hear what sounded right outside of our tent was a whale coming up to breathe and then diving back down, must have been feeding. And then the next morning, we woke up and it was still there, still feeding in the bay. And that was just, it was incredible. So how close to the bay? I mean, you must have been right by the water in order to to hear that. I think that the sound traveled over the water. Uh, we were camped up on a beach above the high tide line, and I'm not sure if the tide had come up, come in a little, and the whale was able to get closer to the shoreline, but it sounded like it was right there. I'm not sure how far out it actually was, though. Yeah, I've uh, never been there, but it's definitely on one of my top, top lists, especially with climate change, you know, because... Glacier Bay is going to change very rapidly in the next, you know, 10, 20 years, but also in the next century. So I wonder if that was something that you were thinking about, or were you just so kind of blown away by the place that you were really focused in the moment? Climate change is definitely a huge factor there. I don't think you can visit Glacier Bay and not have it uh, kind of be hanging over your head the whole time as you see where glaciers used to uh, come all the way out into the ocean and then. You can't even see them anymore because they're so far back on the land. And then also just being in front of the glaciers that are still in the ocean and seeing them continuously calve, which does happen regularly, but it's just happening so much more that, yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's kind of sobering. Yeah, I'm sure it's amazing, but also a little bit saddening. And um, you document all of your trips with this gorgeous photography. Your website is beautiful, full of your, your images and links to your popular social media accounts, especially your Instagram page. So I was curious, once you started on this national park adventure, when did you decide you wanted to share your experiences with the world? I mean, do you have any formal photography training or is this something you kind of learned as you went? I was kind of sharing them always on my Instagram with friends and family. Uh, but then as I was visiting more parks. I'd just been using my iPhone and I was coming home and looking at my photos and realizing that the photos I was seeing on my phone didn't quite align with the memory that I had. And I didn't think I was doing these places justice. So I bought uh, a DSLR camera. Uh, turns out I just wasn't a great photographer in the beginning. And it wasn't the camera that was the issue. And, but then I, kind of taught myself using online tutorials and a few books I bought and a lot of trial and error, mostly error. Yeah, that makes sense. Are you a Canon girl or are you a Nikon photographer? 
I have a cannon. Okay, good. We can still be friends then. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to pause for just a moment, but when we come back, we will continue discussing National Park Adventures and Photography with Sonia. Listener and reader support make National Park's Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Vapor's mission is to inspire and support active lifestyles with innovative, portable, and reusable products while keeping single-use products out of our landfills and oceans. Vapor strives to create a brand and product that you can feel good about using every day. The signature product, the Anti-Bottle, is a lightweight, flexible, reusable bottle designed to stand when full and roll, fold, or flatten when empty. Find your Anti-Bottle at vapor.us. That's V-A-P-U-R U-S. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. And we're back with Sonia Sachs of the National Park Scroll website and social media handles. So one thing that really draws me to your photography is there's often the focus of a of a small person, you know, in the distance, in the midst of this big, breathtaking landscape. And so is that something that you are consciously trying to do, or is that something that's happening naturally? And also, you know, I'm clearly drawn to that type of image because, you know, I'm a fan of your account, I'm a fan of your website, but what draws you to that type of image? I love the little person, big world kind of photo. Uh, and the thing that I like most about it is that having a person in the frame gives you an instant sense of scale. Like in some of these places, rocks can be small pebbles, they can be the size of a desk, they could be the size of a car. And sometimes if it's all the natural world, you don't really have a sense of scale. But if you put a person in it, immediately you're given a sense of scale. And then I also like the idea of having someone imagine that that's them in the scene, that they can think that could be me experiencing that mountainscape or standing in front of that lake. I I like to give that little aspect as well. Yeah. And expanding on that idea, you know, many of our listeners and our readers love taking photos in the national parks. So given that you did learn with a lot of trial and error, do you have any simple tips for those looking to improve their skills other than Uh, like you just mentioned, making sure to include a sense of scale in their photography? Time of day has a huge influence on how a picture turns out. Lighting is so important. So I always recommend sunrise and sunset, the most beautiful time of day, have the best lighting, and it's also the best time to take photos. Your photos will almost take themselves. Uh, And then also, yeah, just always thinking about the composition and leading lines. Is there a trail you can add kind of to lead the viewer's eye 
around the landscape. Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean by that. And that's why, again, I really appreciate the the little people, big world thing that you bring to the photography, because like you said, I can totally imagine myself in some of your images, even though I've never been to, to many of the parks that you feature. And so I want to take a kind of conversational left turn because we could talk about photography all day if we wanted to, and maybe we will for, for a future episode. But we are in the midst of the hashtag MeToo movement. And there has been a lot of focus on women hiking and exploring on their own and what that feels like. And I know me personally, I have very specific memories of traveling alone in um, very rural, natural spaces. And, you know, for different reasons, I can feel very nervous and exposed when I'm alone, which is a feeling that I don't have, you know, when I'm with someone, even if it is another woman. So I was curious, does that type of thing happen to you when you're going to these remote places? You know, do you often explore by yourself or do you usually travel with others? I'm almost always with others. I do a vast majority of my hikes with my husband. And if I'm not with him, I'm usually with a different friend. Uh, I've gone on very, very few solo hikes. I did actually try to go on one last fall. It was in California, uh, down in the Mammoth area. And I was going to go on a sunrise hike by myself. And I started in the pitch black. There was no other cars at the trailhead and it had snowed the night before. So as I was on the trail, I kept hearing things fall in the woods, which I think was the snow falling, but I only made it about two miles when I got so in my head that I had to turn around. And so I think that is definitely something that I'm always thinking about when I'm hiking alone. I prefer to hike on more traveled trails if I'm going to be alone, just knowing that there's other people around should something go wrong. Yeah, that that makes sense. And, you know, it's very important for people to trust their instincts. And I know that as I get more comfortable with a certain area, I'm more comfortable hiking and walking alone. But it's those new places. Like you said, you you had pulled into the trailhead for the first time and it was in the dark. And so for me, it's those new experiences that I'm especially uh, feeling vulnerable. So it's just a different thing that that women think about when they're in the outdoors, uh, especially in the midst of the the Me Too movement. As you move forward with your with your adventures in all the different parks, what are your plans for the future? You know, I do want to note for our listeners that you have a full-time job. So basically you have a full-time job and you have a full-time job in addition to that doing all your national park explorations. And so do you hope to write a book someday about everything that you're doing or do you really prefer that blog format? Writing a book would be a dream. Uh, I don't have anything in the works now, but that's definitely something that's always in the back of my mind as a, as a goal to strive toward. Uh, but for the, the meantime, yeah, I'm just going to be a, a weekend warrior and use my vacation days and long weekends to get out there as much as I can and do my full-time job and have this just kind of be my little, my side gig. So while we're talking, it's the middle of April. Where Where is your next adventure? Where's your next planned expedition to the national parks? Our next one is going to be in July, and we're going to visit Lake Clark National Park in Alaska, which I'm very excited about. Uh, Alaska has some of the hardest to reach national parks, so we try to visit one every summer. And this is one that I've been looking forward to for a 
very long time now. That sounds amazing. Well, we want to wish you luck with uh, all your travels. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great talking with you. That was Sonia Sachs, also known as the National Parks Girl, speaking with us today about her adventures. To learn more, head over to her website at thenationalparksgirl.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. We unloaded our fishing gear from the truck placing rods, snacks, chairs, and bait into a rolling cart. The dunes themselves rolled around us, eventually sloping down to the emerald blue waves of the Gulf of Mexico. We fished for Pompano at Gulf Islands National Seashore. Gulf Islands stretches along the Florida and Mississippi shorelines, protecting rare and beautiful barrier islands, as well as sensitive coastal areas and more. Our favorite area, between Navarre and Pensacola Beach, offers an opportunity for my husband and I to escape the crowds and fish both in the Gulf as well as the San Rosa Sound. We drive the cart east along the sand, setting up about a quarter mile from the parking area and away from most of the other beachgoers. My husband looks specifically for a deep trough of water between the beach and an outer sandbar where he hoped the fish would congregate. Surf fishing is relatively simple. We set up four rod holders strung with bait. After casting into the surf, we merely wait, watching the rod tips for the telltale dip of a fish on. I'm not gonna lie to you, the waiting part is very relaxing. But we didn't wait long. Within a few minutes, my husband had a fish on, reeling in furiously until a foot-long whiting fish flopped onto the sand at our feet. Then another, and another. A fried fish dinner was definitely in our future. But we wanted pompano specifically. This particular species of fish has a forked tail and silver sheen, usually running along our shoreline in the spring. They're also delicious. Suddenly, the tip of a rod dipped, hard. My husband raced to rip the rod from the holder, reeling, 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 and reeling. It's a pompano! And just like that, 
we had a 12 inch pompano on our cooler. Over the course of five hours, we caught four keeper pompano, in addition to a handful of whiting, though we threw many of the small ones back. Back at home, Brian blackened them in a cast iron pan with sides of asparagus and couscous. If anyone asked me, I'd say this was a very successful day along Gulf Islands National Seashore. From Northwest Florida, I'm Erica Zambello. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. Recently, there's been some talk, debate, even a little consternation over the renaming of some units of the national park system as national parks. Gateway Arch National Park, previously known as Jefferson National Expansion Memorial, boy, now there's a mouthful of a park name, spurred quite a bit of dissension when it was renamed a national park in 2018. Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore recently was renamed as a national park, and there are efforts underway to transform White Sands National Monument into White Sands National Park. Let me tell you about one place that isn't called a national park, but probably should be. If you ever sat down to list the units of the national park system that are misunderstood and underappreciated, Dinosaur National Monument would be near the top. That realization can't be ignored if you've floated either the Yampa or Green Rivers that cleave into and expose the geologic underbelly of Dinosaur. No matter the season, the Yampa is an incredible voyage for boaters. It's not technically challenging, although the warm springs rapids certainly can be tricky at certain water levels. 
but the landscape is gorgeous and the remoteness a joy to savior and explore. Though the Yampa flows through northwestern Colorado into northeastern Utah before melding with the Green River, the landscape is much more southern Utah. You drift past these big, towering sandstone monoliths that have been fluted in places by the river. Main canyons dwarf boaters who swivel their heads around in awe. Side canyons harbor alcoves and potholes bigger than hot tubs. They also hold patches of history, broken down homesteaders' cabins. You pitch your tent on grassy benches with box elders to provide shade. Some skyscraper-like walls of rock high above the river are dotted on top with potholes rich with cattails and other watery vegetation. There, near the clouds, they also anchor ponderosa pines, large enough that they seem capable of snagging passing clouds. These rock monoliths also feature curious geologic formations that baffle the imagination. Those who wish to float through dinosaur often are confronted by a dilemma. Do they hope to pull a permit for the Yampa and face the possible early season weather consequences? Or do they toss in their lot with a trip down the Green River, itself not a shabby choice in the least? Indeed, is there any other unit of the national park system that can claim two world-class rivers coursing through their guts? While the Yampa has Teepee, Big Joe, and Warm Springs Rapids, and countless side canyons that hold petroglyphs, pictographs, and journeys into the nearly 211,000-acre monument's rugged backcountry, the green counters with Disaster Falls, Triplet Falls, and Hell's Half Mile, as well as countless side canyons that hold petroglyphs, pictographs, and journeys into the monument's rugged backcountry. So alluring is the Yampa that while Major John Wesley Powell on his own river trips back in the 1860s and 1870s didn't run it, he did order his crew to row a couple miles up the Yampa from its confluence with the green at Steamboat Rock to see what was there. So enticing were these two powerful streams that Congress almost okayed dams that would have backed up 63 miles of the green and another 44 miles of the Yampa. Of course, the downside to that decision not to dam those rivers was the agreement to build the Glen Canyon Dam that today holds back Lake Powell farther downstream. These two rivers, the Yampa and the Green, alone should be justification enough to rename Dinosaur as a national park. Toss in the incredible fossil remains that are entombed here, the long Native American history, the more recent Western bandit history, after all, Butch Cassidy slept here, and the rugged wilderness that lies within its boundaries, and Dinosaur easily deserves the National Park designation. Not that there's anything terribly wrong with the National Monument status. Indeed, that probably fends off quite a bit of visitor traffic and helps Dinosaur retain its wild side. Locals aren't overly keen on renaming the monument a park. Some fear that a Class I air quality designation that would come with it would jeopardize all the energy development in the area. Then, too, others say, there long has been an anti-government sentiment among this part of the West. If you haven't visited Dinosaur yet, you should. Take a ride on one of the rivers, and then check out the Dinosaur Quarry, and take a hike into the landscape. Then ask yourself if dinosaurs should be renamed a national park. And then, finally, keep your answer to yourself. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. 
Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.